didn't say just God loves Americans. God loves Christians. God so loved the world that he gave his son. If God loved the world that much, doesn't he care more about the people that we're concerned about? Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and this is the end of season four. Can't believe it. We're wrapping up, as we always do here on the podcast, with questions from the field. Now, this is a podcast where we have gathered questions from all of our staff all over the country, tried to pick the best ones, but these are real questions asked by real people to search staff here recently in the last few months. And so we're just going to do a rapid fire. I'm joined by Don Barkley. Don, welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Great you for be being back. back. You're yeah. welcome. Uh, Don's with Search out in Orange County and a veteran of the podcast. And I don't really know anybody better to sit down with and ask a bunch of very random, not connected questions to. But we're going we're gonna to do that. And so here are some of these questions from the field. And um, Don, you're just going to give us a, a few minute high level answer and we're going to move kind of quick through a handful of questions here. So first one, this is from Vail, Colorado. How can a rational person believe that Adam and Eve were real people? First question I ask is, why do you think it's, why do you have difficulty as a rational person believing in Adam and Eve? And I suspect it'd be a kind of range of answers, including, well, it's just so strange. I mean, talking snake, a woman made from a rib, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so that's one thing. Um, they might say, well, I just, it seems that it, you can't make a, you can't do the stuff that's talked about. You can't make a woman from a rib. I just don't believe it. It sounds, it sounds like it, that's miraculous. So on the level of it's just plain strange, and it is, there are some, some components of the story that are strange and there are, there's a miraculous, there, there's miracle involved. Even just to create the human beings is miraculous, right? Um, so I, I address the strange part by saying, well, just because it's strange, I mean, the Big Bang is strange too. If you, you know, that's a strange, there was no universe and then there is. That There's nothing stranger <laughs> than that. I mean, a rabbit pu pulled out of a hat is not nearly as impressive as that. So strange, there are a lot of strange, you for, go to a foreign country and eat strange food. So strange doesn't mean you shouldn't believe it. Um, the other miraculous, if there's a God who can act, if there's a God who can create, then there can be acts of God. And so miracles are possible if there's one who can do miracles. So I would put that in there. Also, the story is told, if we can look at the intent of the author, it's told as real events. It names uh, rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris, where Eden is, or where it flows out of, uh, you know, Eden is near the, the flow of those rivers. It has real genealogies. There are genealogies that connect Adam uh, to Abraham, for instance. And I would say, too, that in the Bible, um, the story of Adam and Eve occurs as well throughout, not just in Genesis, you know, chapter 2 and 3. Um, it occurs past there in chapters 4, 5, etc., but it also occurs in Chronicles, um, Job, have I covered my transgressions like Adam, Job writes, your first father, forefather sinned, that's in Isaiah, 
Romans says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And so the Bible assumes that Adam is real, and Jesus talks about Adam is real uh, when he answers the question about marriage in 19. So I would say it's for all those reasons, I would give it the benefit of the doubt and assume that um, past the strangeness, past the miraculous, that maybe those things could happen. And I shouldn't let the weirdness to me, because there are strange things that I have come to accept, uh, and I believe in now, but were strange at first. Um, so I would I would start by asking the person, why do you think it's difficult, and then go from there. But those are some of the reasons I would anticipate. Yeah, and I'm not an expert at this at all, but I believe there's also scientific and genealogical DNA evidence to support potentially a first couple. Right. right. There's no in in more and more we know that there's no genetic genetic science reason to reject the idea that the entire population could come from one couple. Um I mean it I think it's been seen that that we're all actually family that we're whether you're um you 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 are short and dark-skinned or tall and and light-skinned that we are all distant cousins. I think that's pretty cool. And that it's not it that we all came from a couple. We know we came from somewhere, and um, so we I think carry the genetics um, of the descendants of a couple, um, uh, uh, if not Adam and Eve, someone like Adam and Eve. So scientific. I don't think there's any scientific reason to just doubt out of hand that they existed. Great, great answer, Don. All right, ready for number two. Okay, here we go. So. Out of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, one of our staff got this question. Isn't it really self-serving for God to desire that we worship him? That's a great question. It is. Um, I would start by saying it would indeed be weird and inappropriate if I asked you to worship me. Right? Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you said, Don, you are the greatest. You deserve honor and glory. And that would just be inappropriate. Um, a definition in a, a diff- dictionary definition, one from Oxford and English Dictionary, to honor or revere, what it, that is, what is, what is um, worship? To honor or revere as a supernatural being or power. So even in that definition, it's used to, it, to be directed to somebody not human. So one thing is if there is a God who is, Worthy of worship, and the word worship comes from worthship. That's the etymology of it. That they're actually worthy. I'm not worthy to be worshipped, but if there's a God who created everything from nothing and is glorious and magnificent, then it makes sense that you would revere and honor and um, hold in high regard, religious veneration, a God like that. Um, so let's start there. Okay. Awesome. Now, if there is a God, right, like this, then what else could we say about worshiping him? I mean, there's so much that even you think of creation, right? I mean, just the act of of creating the whole universe, it's really more than we can fathom. Yeah, and that's – yeah, I think it's worth maybe talking more I use the word worth. It's worthy of talking more about this because um, to to talk about a God who created, if there are 
a trillion, trillion, trillion suns, you know, S-U-N-S. And that's the estimated size of the universe. So just go there. How different is God from us? Well, one way is to think in, you know, put some metrics to it, just um, quantitate it, quantify it somehow, where um, how big am I compared to the earth? So small. How big is the earth compared to the sun? So small. How big is the sun compared to the solar system? So small. How big is the solar system compared to the galaxy? So, you know, so we haven't even begun to see the size of the universe. If there are a hundred, just a hundred, a hundred million or a hundred billion, let's say, stars in a typical galaxy, which is what I hear, about a hundred billion, two hundred billion perhaps, and there are a trillion, trillion galaxies, then that's one with 21 zeros. That's how many suns there are. So if we're how talk- does that compare to the national debt of the United States? <laughs> I don't, you know, it's funny. You get into the trillions. It's like, I can't, it, it's just, how much is a zillion, you know, sort of like that. Well, so when we're talking about it, it we, we are kind of taken aback by the idea that God wants us to worship him. But if God is worshipable, then it makes sense. If, if, a, if, um, if an artist is really good, then let's say he's really good. If he's really bad, we don't say he's really good. It makes no sense to worship me or to worship a human being. But to worship somebody who is worth it, it makes total sense. Um, and it's good for us. I, you know, one question is, why does God want us to give glory or worship to him? The first answer is that God is glorious, and it's in line with reality. The second is, it's good for us. That if It's good to recognize what is real, Right. It's good to recognize reality. If God is God, then to recognize God as God is the right path. And it's life-giving, too. That's just, it's not just true or accurate or reality. It's actually life-giving. God, <laughs> then God gains. It pleases him. Uh, it's not that God gains and I lose. It's not a zero-sum game like that. It's that I gain. It is life-giving to praise something wonderful. You go to a great concert. It's a highlight of your year. Is it taxing to you or draining to tell someone, tell someone about how great the concert was? Is it draining to you to applaud, to stand and yell and scream after the concert's over, to, to want another song, an encore sort of thing? No, it's not draining. It's life-giving. And so the same thing. What if, if there's a God who's glorious, then it's good for us to give glory. And God is giving us the privilege then. It's, he's giving to us the privilege of getting in on his amazingness, <laughs> yeah, his glory. It's the most joyful place to be in the presence of God, applauding the best part of my life. All right. You ready for the third question? Okay. Here we go. Uh, this one's out of Oklahoma City. If Jesus is real, why can't he be proven scientifically? Well, that's a great question because science involves stuff, nature. That's what science is about. Um, it's it's it does great in talking about the physical physical world, but if we're talking about supernatural stuff, science isn't very good at that. Just as it's not very good, for instance, uh, it, something else is not very good at. You can't prove scientifically that you have a great 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 grandmother. I mean, we know we we would deduce it because you're here, and we know how things work. But you've never seen her. You haven't. You haven't seen with your 
eyes, you haven't experienced with your five senses, your great, 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 great grandmother, but we know you have one. What if, what if there are writings about her? That would be even better. Some things like history and journalism, we don't study scientifically. Scientifically is when we experience and we test hypotheses regarding processes of nature, et cetera. But, but in history, we go by eyewitness accounts, right? The yeah. primary sources. And if somebody knew your grandmother and wrote about her, or if she wrote about herself, wouldn't that be amazing? To have a scarf or a book uh, that she owned would be one thing, but to have letters from her would be another and so we look at history that way. We study it, not scientifically. So looking for gods, the supernatural, or looking for people in the past, and using the scientific method would be like trying to, as you know, John Hopper, one of our colleagues said, it'd be looking for, like looking for oil with a metal detector. <laughs> or, and I thought, or, or it's looking, like looking for the invisible man with a security camera. You can't detect the invisible with something that catches visible visible light, a visible light. Um, you can't uh, capture the sound of a bird with a microscope. You know, so uh, science is great for studying what science, science is for, you know, the, the natural realm. Um, so I think that's enough on that. I think, um, you know, you know, when, when people ask um, about Jesus, and I think the question was, if Jesus is real, why can't he be proven scientifically, right? Yes. Okay. So so we can study, we can know that Jesus existed in a similar fashion that we know that Thomas Jefferson existed or Julius Caesar existed by by written sources. Um, we have if we if we have no written sources, that's one thing. But in fact, we have lots of written sources for Thomas Jefferson. We have many for Julius Caesar. We have tons more, in fact, in terms of manuscript evidence early manuscript evidence of Jesus Christ. And, and we have evidence that those stories were told by eyewitnesses or associated with eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. So again, we're not using science. We're using the, the realm of history and historical, historical practices, uh, much like a, going to a scene of a crime that's you know uh, like a cold case. You're not looking at the crime a court of law doesn't demand that they see the crime. No, but they they they, they bring eyewitnesses. They bring um, artifacts. They bring DNA evidence, whatever. Well, in a way, the story of Christ is like that. If these written sources are are sourced in contemporaries to Jesus who knew him and experienced him, wouldn't that? Wouldn't you want to take notice of that? Take note of it. And if you throw out, if you throw out the Bible's story of Jesus based on lack of manuscript evidence, you'd have to throw out all the histories that tell us about the Peloponnesian Wars, the Punic Wars, the, the, the stories of any kind of ancient history. You'd have to throw all those out. Why? Because the Bible has much more manuscript evidence and early manuscript evidence uh, than, than these ancient histories do. Well, speaking of the Bible, our next question is actually about the Bible, Don. This one comes from Lubbock, Texas, and uh, it's this question right here. Why did the Bible need a New Testament? What was wrong with the old one? Yeah, I've heard this one before, and, and uh, uh, one time I said to a person, it sounds like you're wondering, is it something like a refrigerator? I got a new refrigerator, and 
what was wrong with the old one, right? Yeah. So is it like that? And I'll say, no, it's, it's, it's different than that because this is a story and the story is in two major parts. We call the Old Testament, New Testament. It's not just one story. I mean, two story. It, it, it's not a separate story. It's one story told. Um, for those of you who uh, like J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, it would be like the Old Testament is like the Hobbit, Fellowship of the Ring, and the Two Towers. And the New Testament is the Return of the King. It's all one story. And so would you ask, well, why do we need Return of the King? What was wrong with the other stories? Say, well, you don't understand. It's all one story. The Old Testament, the, the Messiah of the Old Testament is anticipated in that book. So the Old Testament, which, by the way, is the Jewish Bible. It's it's same as the Jewish Bible. Books are organized a little bit different. They call it the, their Tanakh. That Bible is our Old Testament. And they look forward to a Messiah. That's the word Christ. They look forward to a Christ who is going to come someday. They not only look forward to a, they look forward to a, a coming where he is, if you read the scripture, one who is going to die, the suffering servant passages, anticipate that. Isaiah 53, um, Psalm 22, etc., where this, this one will come and give his life as a, as a payment for many. Check out Isaiah 53. It's amazing. That's in the Old Testament, written some 700 years before Christ. But it also anticipates, and this is very much clear in the Old Testament, is that there will be a, a time when he comes and he restores creation from its fallen state and brings peace. And he's called the Prince of Peace, in fact, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. So he's going to come, and in this apocalyptic, apocalyptic completion or culmination, uh, restoration, the Messiah will come. Now, the New Testament tells of the first coming when he dies, and in tandem with the Old Testament, anticipates this final coming of Christ. So the New Testament talks about the same subject that the Old Testament have. It's just a continuation of the story. So I would say um, nothing was wrong with the old one. It just wasn't complete. And the New Testament story completes the story. It's the return of the king. That's a great explanation, Don. Really, really good. Well, good. Good. Thanks. Especially in such a short amount of time. That's a that's a tough question in a couple minutes. So awesome. Okay, let's move on. We got another one from Lubbock. I guess I put them right uh, together. But uh, okay, how can you call it free will if I don't have the choice to reject God after I accepted him as a teenager? Yeah, boy, I wish I could talk to the person who's actually asking that because what where's this coming from? Because I would say, well, why can't you reject him? Why can't you? You have you have the choice. You can reject him. Maybe they're coming from a background that says, um, and certain Christian church traditions, especially in the Calvinist or Reformed church tradition, would say that once you believe in Christ and accept him and become a child of God, then you won't reject him. You don't have the privilege of rejecting him. And maybe that's where this is coming from. I don't know. Otherwise, I'd say, well, why, why can't you reject him? I... So that it may be coming from that. I don't know. It depends on what you mean by reject, too, right? Because right. yeah, yeah. are we talking about, well, can I give back my salvation? Right. Is one kind right. of that. Right. I feel like that might be the question. But mm -hmm. the other, there's a softer form of that, too, isn't it? Of just, well, you and I reject God every day. I don't want my, I'm not giving him back 
salvation, but exactly. I kind of don't do what he wants me to do. I <laughs> Yeah, and, and personally, that's where I'm at with this. I, I think that there are such a thing as ordinary Christians. I think there are children of God. Just look in my family. I have, I have children, <laughs> children in my family who, when they were children, weren't perfect. Uh, they needed to grow in the change. They were still my children. They disobeyed, and they were still my children. They, um, one ran away, still my children, still my child. And so um, I think um, the way I look at it, you, you, a person may indeed maybe fall out of love with God um, and, and want someday to reject him. I, I believe that's true. Um, once a person becomes a child of God, here's, here's developing this idea. I don't think they, they never lose that status as a child. They can become uh, obnoxious. They can become um, uh, distant, but they may not grow much, and they may become, like I said, ornery. It's possible that a believer may, be, because of disappointment due to tragic circumstances, we know people like that. There's a believer in Christ, and uh, there's a death of someone they dearly loved. Maybe they prayed that they would be healed, and they're not healed, and there's disappointment. Maybe there's some um, abuse, maybe by a Christian leader or something. Um, maybe there's disobedience because they're swayed by the lures of this world. And the the the, the New Testament, all throughout, it asks Christians to pleads with Christians to uh, stay close to Jesus, stay close and and follow Him, and don't be swayed by the world. Don't give in to the to the lures uh, of the enemy, you know, the devil, etc. So, is that possible? I think it's possible. They don't stick close to Jesus. They get tempted away. That's possible. Um, maybe they just plain choose to distance themselves from God. Then they can reject him. But I believe if they're a child of God, doesn't mean because they professed or say they are, there means that they're a child of God. God knows if they're a child of God, then they're a child of God. And if even if they reject God, God won't reject them. It's one of the great promises of the Bible. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, number six, question number six, coming from uh, Fort Worth, Texas, actually, just where we are. So uh, one of our staff got this question. You can't trust the New Testament. I guess it's more of a statement <laughs> as I'm looking at it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can't trust the New Testament to be reliable history since the books and letters and doctrines weren't even decided on until the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. That's way too late to be reliable history about anything in the New Testament. Don, what say you to that? This, this is so common. It's so common. Ever since the Da Vinci Code, I think, um, uh, it, I hear this question. I think, okay, where do I start? Um, I'll start here. First, the councils, including the Council of Nicaea, didn't select the books of the New Testament. That's, uh, that's, that's fiction. I liked what one of my friends said uh, about the Da Vinci Code. If you uh, don't trust history, then don't trust fiction either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was in the fiction section. It was in the fiction section. But, boy, I hear this, and even though they've never read the Da Vinci Code or seen the movie, it's, um, it's the trickle-down effect has been powerful. So I'd first say the books were around for 250-plus years before the Council of Nicaea. And they were recognized as New Testament books before that. We have New Testament manuscripts that are older than the meeting of that council in the mid-200s, like the Chester Beatty Library body of books. 
I think the number is 47. We have 47 New Testament manuscripts that date to the mid-200s, late-200s. Council of Nicaea was 325. So we're talking about 125-plus years before we had 47 copies of the New Testament. So if so, they existed, and they were recognized by early church leaders, Irenaeus, uh, Tatian, etc. They recognized the four Gospels, and that's often the issue. Aren't there more Gospels? But four Gospels were recognized early. They were— only. Only Two. four Gospels. In fact, in fact, we don't have any record of any Gospels in the first century. Other than the ones we have. The other than, we have other than the, the ones, ones we have, just those four. And so it's not like there are a hundred Gospels floating around and, boy, we have to pick and choose. No, there were the four Gospels. And we have early writers quoting those Gospels, early, Clement of Rome in 95, for instance, and others, um, that are quoting these New Testament Gospels. And so the Council of Nicaea didn't decide who, who, what books would go in the New Testament. And they didn't make it historical. They were either history or they weren't. So whatever some committee decided, the real question is, do they look and sound and give evidence that they're historically authentic, accurate? And the... The, I think the evidence is is there, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, that we have manuscript evidence, we have um, extra-biblical sources like um, Josephus, Tacitus, to talk about Christianity. If we had no New Testament at all, we would know so many things about Jesus Christ, for instance, um, that are from non-Christian early sources, no later than early second century sources, um, like Tacitus, for instance, Suetonius. And so um, the Council of Nicaea used the books of the New Testament to, to make their big judgment on the theological question, what's the nature of Jesus Christ? Um, whether What books go in the New Testament wasn't even an agenda item, as Dan Wallace would put it, uh, one of our uh, mentors in uh, the field of New Testament manuscripts. All right. Well, that might be – I've written that down as possibly an entire episode for the next season. So we'll see. Okay. Uh, we'll see if I freely choose to <laughs> make that uh, yep. an episode. Okay, here Good. we go. Question seven out of Houston, Texas. Why couldn't God create free people who never sin? And if free moral agents will inevitably sin sometimes, then why can't God sin? Yeah, why couldn't God create people, uh, free people who never sin? Well, I think we've talked about this where, in other podcasts where um, he wanted a love relationship with us, so he made us be able to sin, for instance. If he created people who never sin, then that would be kind of a, a programming. Now, that said, and just as a buildup to the second part of the question, why can't God sin, is that there is a day coming that we who believe in Jesus Christ— uh, according to the Bible, will be in a state of peace and glory and perfect love in heaven, and we won't sin. The question is, is will we be able to sin? And I would say, would we be able to? Yes. And the illustration is, um, so. And, and this also involves the angels. What about the good angels? Could they sin? Um, but but it, it's all, so all we're going to get to the question, why doesn't God sin? And the answer, quick answer is because God is God. God is who he is, and he is good, perfectly good. 
But I'm going to start here that in heaven, for instance, uh, won't we be able to, to sin there? And I'll say, we, we'll be able to, but we won't. There are a lot of things I'm able to do, but I don't. I don't drive head on into traffic on the freeway I, because I, I just know, I know about that. You, no person in their right mind would jump into the Grand Canyon because they know what it is. Are they free to do it? Yeah. They, they, they're able to, but they won't. So in Scripture, what we see is that God has concealed who he is as well as reveal and will reveal more as to who he is. And so someday, just like a person sees the Grand Canyon for what it is, there will come a time where we will see God for who he is. Um, Philippians 3, for instance, says, uh, we are citizens of heaven and we're waiting for his return. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, this famous passage you hear at weddings all the time in the love chapter, he says, now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections, or reflections in a mirror. Um, in a, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. So the Bible says that God has concealed. When Moses asked to see him, he said, I only show you my back. And in John, in both his letter and in the Gospel of John, says, no man has seen God at any time. Um, we've only seen Jesus, who has, has shown him accurately. Someday, we, though, we will see God perfectly. Revelation says that God will indwell. No, no reason for sun or the sun or lights, because God will be our light. God will make us able to take that and enjoy that. We will see him someday. And no one will want to see, any more than a person, have seen the grandness of the Grand Canyon, will want to jump in. All of us are free. I think the angels who are good have been given what Aquinas and others called the beatific vision, a special open the, open the curtains and show, oh, oh my. And then who would, who would, who would jump into the granny? Who would disobey? And so why doesn't he do it now? Why doesn't he reveal himself now? Because God doesn't want to coerce us by awe into belief. He wants us to choose. So he gives us a little bit of heaven and a little bit of hell. He gives. He shows us his art gallery called Creation. He's written letters to us, 66 of them, called the Bible, 66 chapter, uh, yeah. books of the Bible. And he's paid us a visit in a very gentle, unassuming, humble way as a carpenter who walks among us. So God doesn't want to overwhelm us into the kingdom. He, he wants to woo us because it's about love. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, Don, and, and kind of tying a bow on what you've said there. It, one of the things that we – I think it's easy to forget, maybe is the way I would put it, is the transformational aspect of what we believe that's going to happen in the future. So it's hard yeah. to think right now that I wouldn't mess up. Right, right. Well, that's because theologically we believe we're uh, we're fallen. We've got problems and there's issues with the state in which we exist that God is going to transform with our, our new bodies and a renewed nature and right. so forth. And it's just hard for us to wrap our minds around that right now. It is. And uh, it's hard, but I'm looking forward to it. Me too. You know, it's uh, I'm sick of myself sometimes, you know, and there'll be no more like no more moments like that. Um, theologians call it, you know, glorification. 
we're going to be glorified. We're going to be changed. We're not going to be deified, but we'll be glorified. We'll be new creations, and, and it'll be complete. So all the things that we, are, we ought to do now, we will do. And all the things we ought not to do, we won't do. And why? Because we don't have choice? No, we do. But, but we'll see the glory of God, and we will be different as well. Last question. You up for it? I am. Okay, here I'm we go. I'm not giving up. <laughs> Out of Minneapolis, way up in Minnesota, uh, here's the question. It doesn't make sense to me that God would exclude those who have not heard about Jesus. If God is love, how can this be true? Okay, um, great question. It's a great question. And it's assumed sometimes in that question that um, God is holding people responsible responsible for information they don't have. Um, that part of the unfairness is the, the exclusion is that he's giving some people, Christians, information, and he's giving all other people nothing. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. There are so many things that we know. Uh, you just look at, for instance, in Romans 1, um, we're, we're, we're able and we have the, the software, we're wired with our conscience or with our reasoning. We'll get to conscience later, but our reasoning and our ability to know cause effect, to know that because we see creation, there must be a creator. It says ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived, so they're without excuse. So everybody everywhere, all the nations, all the people before Christ, thousand years before, people everywhere have, have a front row seats to, to nature. And some of them have better root seats than we do to the heavens. Farmers depend know the skies and the weather patterns much better than we do in the urban <laughs> in urban life. The second thing they know is they know the laws of right and wrong, even without a Bible. And second, given a conscience, they know uh, when they when they blow it, when they mess up. So everybody knows that there's a God. They they all know that there's a moral law wherever they are, and they all know that they've messed up. And the Bible says anybody who recognizes that and turns to heaven and says, where are you? I need your mercy because I don't want to meet you someday knowing that you're probably the base of this moral law. And all through the Bible, it says if, if they seek him. But before that, here's some other things the Bible says about God giving to people. In Acts 14, he says to these pagan people, people who worship, you know, Zeus and etc. He said, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, that he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good. How? By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's the providence of God. So there's the creation of God, and then there's a providence of God. And then listen to this in Acts 17. Uh, I um, started talking about how available he is for those who seek him. Paul says to the Athenians, um, he himself gives to all mankind life and to breath and everything, all mankind. See, the Bible is never just focused on one. Um, back up a little. When, when God talks to Abraham and promises to Abraham as the cho- his chosen people will come, uh, he says, and I will bless you, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So God has always had a view to, to reach people, the whole world. And so I, I think that's important. Paul says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from any one of us. So everybody has access to God. How? By seeking him. And over and over. And, you know, let me tell you one story just in closing. Um, has this ever happened? Has this ever happened? We think it's difficult. For, for me, it's difficult. How can God reach a tribal people who have no missionaries and no Bible? How can, he, how can he do that? Well, it'd be difficult for us, but it's not difficult for God. And we have story after story, even through visions. He's not limited to missionaries and the Bible. Through visions and dreams and angelic visits or whatever. The number of, for instance, people in, in, from the Islamic religion, Muslims, who are seeing visions of Jesus. Now, for a Christ, as a Christian, I think, well, yeah, that's, that makes total sense because I think Jesus is who he says he is. And the, the number of people that are having God revealed to them by supernatural means, well, has he done that before? The story of the Karen people of Burma is amazing. Anna and Adoniram Judson in the um, um, early 1800s left England, 1812, went and met with William Carey, missionary in India, and went on to Burma. William Carey advised them not to go. It would be trouble. They expected that they'd have to work years before anybody would come to Christ. Well, let me tell you the results and, and the reason why of the results. But the results were within 25 years of their, go uh, years of their going, 11,878 Karens were baptized as Christians. 11,000 within 25 years. Why? Because their, their parents and their grandparents, their ancestors, had lore, poems, and songs about, yes, Yahweh. It's spelled Y apostrophe W-A. Here's a poem. Yahweh formed the world originally. He appointed food and drink. He appointed the fruit of trial. He gave detailed orders. Macaulay deceived two persons. He caused them to eat the fruit of the tree of trial. They obeyed not. They believed not. Yahweh. When they ate the fruit of trial, they became subject to sickness, aging, and death. What does that sound like? How did they get this? And people are like anthropologists going, where did they get this? Only Yahweh can save us. They knew it. And they knew that a white man with a golden, golden book will come with a message to save us. So in, in 1858, this is fast forward, Karen Christians were starting missionary work themselves to other hill tribes, such as the Kachin in northern Burma. They found the Kachin just as receptive as they themselves had been. Why? Because they too had been prepared through visions and stories and dreams that their ancestors passed down. So, um, um, the Kachin and the Chin are now 90% Christian, by the way, those, those tribal groups. So, can God reach people? Does, first, does God care? Yes. And I would just close with this, that if we care and if God exists, how much does he care? If he, and if he came and really did die for sins, God so loved the world, it didn't say just God loves Americans. God loves Christians. God so loved the world that he gave his son. If God loved the world that much, doesn't he care more about the people that we're concerned about? And the final analysis, anybody who asks this question is probably not one of those that we're talking about. They are, they are in earshot of the gospel. It's good to be concerned about the others because maybe God isn't just, maybe God isn't good. But all the stories you hear through the Bible and even now is that 
people are being reached by God. You know who sends out most, except the U.S., most foreign Christian missionaries? The little country of, you know, South Korea, formerly really? Buddhist and whatever, you know, ain't Asian oh. religions. They are a Christian nation. Why is that? Because God cares about people. Why is the house church in China so strong? Why within, within by 2050, will there be more Christians in sub-Saharan, three sub-Saharan African countries than in the United States? Why will it be strange for a Christian to think, oh, you have white skin and blonde hair. You're a Christian? Because God loves the world. Because he said, through you, all the nations will, will be blessed. He cares. And he has, he has revealed himself to them and brought them to the salvation that we talk about. Well, Don, I don't think there's a better way to end season four of the Search podcast than talking about God's love and care for the world and for all people. So thank you so much. It's a great answer to that question. And this is a fun podcast going through all these different random questions, wasn't it? Yeah, I've got to go lie down, I think. Well, I'm going to buy you lunch, (laughs) okay? okay? We're going to go to lunch. And uh, just before we wrap up, uh, to everyone listening, thank you for making this season. This is the fourth season of the podcast. Thank you for continuing to listen, for making it just a, a fantastic uh, uh, season and a bunch of questions that we've been able to, to talk through here. Really, really appreciate you listening and giving us your time. And so we hope to make these podcasts even more valuable for you. Have an amazing summer. Go enjoy it. And we're going to see you back here on the Search Podcast for Season 5 this fall. More information to come. Have a great summer, everybody. We'll see you in the fall.